3 verses 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. And uh, hey, everyone, welcome and great to see you. Uh, Great to be back together as a church family. Obviously, a lot of people still away on holidays. Um, some people are not feeling too well this week as well. And so uh, we always enc- encourage everyone to stay at home if they're not feeling well. But thank you for coming out. And um, I want to say as well, um, though the over there, uh, thank you to St. Brendan's Catholic Church who have generously gifted us this garden for this, the, the, the period of January so that we can meet in outdoors in the sun and in the shade. So um, that's just a really wonderful and generous thing uh, from Favi Hen and uh, the rest of the congregation as well. Um, we are starting a new series uh, this morning on spiritual formation, um, what it means to uh, be a spiritually formed person and a spiritually formed Christian. Uh, so before we jump into this uh, first chapter, then how about we pray together and ask for God's help. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit and that your desire for our lives is not that we stay the same, but that we actually grow uh, to be more like Jesus in the kind of uh, person that he is, the kind of human being that he has become and is the first fruits of this new creation that you are making in this world. Uh, we ask that you would open our hearts and the eyes of our hearts to, to hear and see uh, what it is that you have for us this morning. Amen. I'm just going to check that Gavin is definitely recording. Thank you, Gavin. Okay, uh, so two Decembers ago, I decided that I wanted to get a Christmas tree. I wanted to get a real Christmas tree. But at the time, Jackie and I were living in a pretty small townhouse, didn't have much space. So I thought, well, I'll I'll see if I can find a miniature Christmas tree if such a thing exists. So I went to the place where everything is, and that is Bunnings. And lo and behold, miniature Christmas trees in pots. And I thought, brilliant, because not only are they miniature, but they're meant to be reusable. You buy it in a pot, you bring it indoors for a month, and then you take it out, give it some sun and some water, and then next Christmas, you use it again. I thought, brilliant, this is, this is so amazing. I couldn't possibly have got better. Uh, the problem was that it didn't work out so well. Um, inside, it was a, a beautiful little Christmas tree. I put it outside at, um, after Christmas Day. Um, and the next uh, year, it just didn't do too well. It started showing these uh, brown spots um, that seemed to disturbingly spread and spread. There was still green, it was still growing a little bit, but it just didn't look healthy at all. So eventually I decided, all right, I'm just giving up. I'm giving up. Um, So I went to the pot I put it in to take it out of the ground so I could put something else in there. And almost fell over. It took so little effort to come out. (laughs) And I looked at it and I thought, well, here's the problem the roots hadn't grown at all. They stayed exactly the same size as they had when I bought it. With such an underdeveloped root system, no wonder that it wasn't flourishing. I don't know why, perhaps for the lack of sun, lack of water, lack of the right soil, I don't know. But even though the poor Christmas tree hadn't yet died, it was certainly not thriving. 
So this last Christmas, I went and bought a plastic tree and you'll be happy to know that it is going really, really well and continues to. Uh, it's no accident that the Bible uses trees as an image to represent a person's spiritual life. Uh, spiritually strong people are imagined as great oaks, strong and tall, and, and spiritually unhealthy people uh, are described as fruitless trees, more brown than green, that don't bear fruit. And as we know from walking through any park after a big storm, the ultimate test for a tree and its health is a crisis point. Strong trees with deep roots, well, they weather the storms and the winds, but those with shallow roots or weak limbs, well, they get badly damaged at best, and at worst, they are uprooted entirely. In the same way, it seems that spiritually healthy people have spiritually deep roots. They have regular access to the life-giving spiritual water of Jesus. Lack, uh, lack of spiritual health comes from inadequate access, which leaves a person choked and undernourished. The process of driving down deep spiritual roots is spiritual formation. This is more than just uh, learning spiritual information, but actually about uh, being formed and shaped as a whole person, your whole being, which includes your, not just your thoughts, but your desires, your emotions, your habits, and your hopes. The Bible calls it lots of different things. In Deuteronomy, it's called loving God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. In Proverbs, which you just heard before, it's called gaining wisdom. In the Gospels, it's called seeking the kingdom. And Paul, here in Colossians, uh, calls it setting your heart on things above. Or you might have heard of the theological term that, that people use, sanctification, the, the process of being made holy. Uh, through all these terms and images, the scriptures set forward a vision where followers of Jesus learn to grow tall and strong like trees with deep roots. And over the next five weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three essential practices for spiritual formation. The meditation of scripture, a deep and uh, reflective prayer life, and um, a personal rhythm of Sabbath. So scripture, prayer, and Sabbath. But first, before we get to those uh, practices, we're going to explore today how it is that these practices actually do anything, how it is that someone grows. And uh, to grow, it takes at least three things. It, uh, it takes understanding your influences, reordering your loves, and establishing good habits. Okay, you got those? Understanding your influences, reordering your loves, and establishing good habits. Those are the three things we're going to look at today. So first, uh, understanding your influences. Uh, my son, who I think is over there somewhere, uh, is uh, a bit over two years old. And as a two-year-old, he has learned to run. Oh, there he is over there. He's learned to run. Uh, and as a result of him being able to run, we now have to teach him road safety <laughs> because walking along a busy street as a, a street as a parent of a two-year-old is a bit scary, right? So we're teaching him road safety. How are we doing that? Well, uh, we're teaching him by information. When we get to a road, we hold his hand and say, Jonathan, okay, is there any cars coming? Look right, look left. Okay, now we can cross, hold on to our hands. That's information. 
But we actually do a bit more than that, I realise, actually thinking about it. Um, it's a bit more subtle. When I'm holding Jonathan's hand walking down the street, when I get towards closer to a road, I actually slow down. And so he slows down. And I hold his hand a bit tighter. And so he feels a sense of, oh, what's going on here? And I look right and left to make sure there's no cars coming. So he's watching that and seeing that. What it says is that actually formation of a person is, is more than just what information I give them, but actually more subtle than that. It's about shaping uh, someone's instincts and, uh, and attitudes and, um, and defaults, I guess. In life, uh, not just learning to do road safety, uh, we are constantly being influenced, and sometimes quite obviously through information like at school, but often through more subtle means. And some of these influences are really good and necessary for growing up as a person, um, but others are actually can be quite malevolent. Romans 12 verse 2 picks up this idea uh, when Paul writes, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, Paul assumes actually that we have a default mode. And our default mode is to be conformed to the world, conformed to the prevailing culture that is around us. Now, we all probably uh, heard the phrase growing up in high school, you know, you can change the world. You probably saw it on the, the banner of your university when you signed up. Um, there's a, actually a truer statement that really should be taught to you when you're in your high school as well, and that is that the world will change you. <laughs> actually, much more than you will change the world. The world will change you. This has always been true, but thanks to a media-saturated culture, it's never been truer. Every day we're deeply influenced by a myriad of voices aiming to convince us to act and to believe and to think in certain ways. The influence of media on our minds and hearts has begun to capture the fears of a lot of people. It's become a really hot topic. Uh, you might have seen a Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I haven't watched it yet, but um, Jackie did, and I've read some articles about it. Uh, it seems to say that um, it's a bunch of experts giving voice to this fear that we are being manipulated on a deep level by things like AI and algorithms. So far from bringing about this utopia of human connectedness, the fruits of the internet, particularly social media, uh, have often seemed to be strange and disturbing and unusual. Let's give you some examples. The, uh, it has the capacity to make us far more envious as a people. The curated worlds of social media prevent, present a vision of, of reality which um, isn't actually real, isn't actually true, it's divorced from reality. It has the outcome of growing such envy in us of the supposedly perfect lives of others that we will sacrifice money, time, and relationships to gain for ourselves what they have. It makes us more envious. It also has the power to make us far more intolerant of others and gullible about untruths. We are herded by these algorithms so that we interact primarily with people who think exactly like us which leads us to despising those who are not like us and believing whatever it is that confirms our own biases. Biases. It makes us also far more consumeristic, far more greedy, to use the biblical world word. Uh, a never-ceasing flood of advertising, along with one-click shopping and free shipping, leaves us constantly unsatisfied of what we don't have. 
Well, it's constantly unsatisfied what we do have and deeply covetous of what we don't have. It seems like in our culture, the, the saturation of media has amplified the power of the very thing that Romans 12 verse 2 warns us against, being conformed to worldliness, or to use Paul's other favorite term for it, to be conformed to sin. The sinful mantra of our world is do whatever it takes, no matter what the cost, to serve yourself. So the beginning of the journey towards spiritual formation is identifying how it is that you are currently being formed, shaped, guided. Okay, It requires some introspection, some looking inwards at your own heart. Ask yourself the question, what are my influences? What are the things, what are the messages that I hear that I want to believe? And are they healthy? Are they good? Are they godly? Things like you'll never be satisfied until you have that. Or people who are wrong deserve your outrage and anger. Or everyone else is happier and more successful than you are. (laughs) Or the only way you'll be accepted is if people think your life is perfect. I think it's safe to say that we've all heard those messages and all, all been tempted to believe them at some stage. Now, at this point, uh, some will say there's a clear solution, right? What's the solution? Deactivate Facebook. Get off social media. Get off Twitter. And to be perfectly honest, that might be a really good idea for some people, or at least to to limit the amount of time you spend, for sure. Ways to to avoid being too crowded with these messages... Um, that, that promote worldly selfishness. If, stum- if social media is a stumbling block for you, then yeah, do something about it, absolutely. But here's the thing, right? No amount of account deactivations can completely remove you from the culture of the world. Can't. It'd be like a fish trying to avoid the water of the ocean in which it is swimming. <laughs> it's impossible to do. It's impossible, or maybe without going completely off-grid altogether. And we know that God calls us to actually be in the world, not to leave the world, so that we can be lights to the world. Spiritual formation, then, is not just avoiding something bad. It's actually more primarily pursuing something better. It's not just avoiding something bad. It's pursuing something better. And since we're always being formed, it's about taking steps to ensure Our greatest influence is not the world, but God. Okay, now, to do that requires something very specific. It requires not more than just an online audit of your life. It requires a reordering of your loves. St. Augustine was perhaps the greatest thinker, um, uh, a Christian thinker since the Apostle Paul. Uh, And he had this extraordinary ability to... Um, to inspect his own heart and, and the human heart in general. And I mean heart not in the way that modern people talk about heart as in kind of feelings and emotions. For the ancient people, the heart was the, the core of you, the deepest place of you, the, where your deepest motivations and inclinations uh, come from. Augustine realized that what everyone really wants, every human being wants to be happy. 
And as a result, on, on this quest to find happiness, we latch ourselves onto whatever things or objects or people we think will bring us the most happiness. So Augustine realized that actually we are most formed not by the things that we think, we're most formed by the things that we love, the things that we desire, the things that we treasure. And he went further than that to say that actually there is a order of loves. There's an order of loves. For example, I believe that my relationship with my wife, Jackie, my marriage, uh, is, impacts my happiness more than my love of Marvel movies, right? I love both, but I'm certain most of the time, that no, all the time, that my marriage impacts my happiness more than Marvel movies. Um, and this is fortunate because no wife ever wants to come in second to Captain America, right? I think it's safe to say. Now, there's nothing wrong with me loving Marvel movies. Um, they make me happy. <laughs> but as long as I love them less than more important things, i.e. my wife, my son, my family, my marriage, <laughs> my church, you know, lots of things. But the problem is that we tend to love lesser things more than we should and greater things less than we should. This is the human predicament. We love greater things less than we should and smaller things more than we should. That's why there are lots of divorces and, and very few people giving up on watching Marvel movies, comparatively. Greater things require more from us to keep our love kindled, while lesser things require far less. My marriage takes much more work than my Disney Plus account. This may surprise you. That's true. Uh, the problem is that the world is constantly demanding that we love certain things more than others. For example, Facebook says, love the opinion of others far more than God's opinion of you. Instagram says, love an unrealistic vision of your body far more than the person God made you to be. And Twitter says, love being right far more than being kind. Spiritual health, according to Augustine, comes from correctly ordering your loves. And it's an astonishing insight, but it wasn't a new one, actually. He was just a good student of the Bible. That's why the central prayer of the Jewish people called the Shema is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus repeated that himself as being the first and greatest commandment. Because if God truly is your greatest good, your most valuable treasure, then your life will be deeply rooted in him and his truth. And your worth, your value, your acceptance, your wisdom will come from him. And you will find in him happiness. Or, more, or better actually, joy. Something that's not uh, bound to your circumstances but runs far deeper. And you will love great things greatly and small things smallly. Okay, how do you do that? How do you reorder your loves? Romans 12, 2 contains the secret. It says, uh, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek word that's translated transformed there is metamorpho, from where we get metamorphosis. Think of a caterpillar. It's, it's, it's conf being conformed is to be, is to be uh, shaped by an external force, molded to this external force. To be transformed is to be changed from the inside out. 
What Paul has in mind is not simply adopting new spiritual influences to counter the worldly influences. Unfortunately, you just can't watch, listen to more sermons and more podcasts. No, he's talking about embracing an inner power of godliness that radically reshapes who we are at our very core. We have to be transformed, not just conformed. And he expands on this in Colossians 3, which we heard read out. Uh, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is such an important passage if you want to grow as a Christian. When Paul says, set your hearts on things above, he's talking about spiritual formation. And remember, your heart is the core of you. So he's saying that make sure your deepest longings, your deepest inclinations are towards the things of God and not towards the things of the earth. How do you train your heart to do that? Well, in one way, you can't. Jesus himself says, and with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It takes a sovereign work of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to transform a life from the inside out. It takes God opening your eyes to the truth of Jesus and, and regenerating you and beginning the lifelong work of sanctification. So in one sense, you can't. But in some mysterious way, God actually has made it so that we are not spectators in our own transformation. We're not bystanders standing off to one side. No, he invites us to come in and partner with him in the renovation of our lives. You can make real decisions that matter to set your hearts on things above and not on things of the earth. And the heart of this is how you view Christ with spiritual eyes, how you, your attitude, your posture towards Christ. And I think there are three ways that you can um, see Christ as a Christian. Three ways. The first way uh, can be summed up as my life like Christ's life. Right? My life like Christ's life. It's about imitation. Someone goes to Christ and says, wow, Jesus is so wonderful, so perfect, oh, so, so ethical, so moral, so loving. I want to be like him. I'm just going to try and imitate him. That's a good thing to do, right? But by itself, it's not enough because the roots of this kind of spirituality of just imitation don't go very deep. Because pretty soon we'll figure out that we actually fall far short of Christ's example. Or otherwise, we'll kid ourselves to thinking that actually we do measure up and so we'll be filled with spiritual pride. Hopefully, though, we soon realize that actually we're far greater sinners than we ever thought and Christ is a far greater saviour than we ever thought. He came not for the righteous, but for sinners to grant them the ability to repent. So our view has changed from Christ, my life like Christ's life to a different, a different um, posture, which is Christ in my life, right? Christ has come into my life. He's forgiven my sins, saved me from myself, opened the door to knowing God, adopting me as his child. Christ lives in my heart by the Holy Spirit. And now I want him to be the center of all that I am. And the most important thing, you know, my greatest love, Christ in my life. And that's a much better posture. And in fact, I think that it's where most mature Christians um, spend most of their time. 
It's not a wrong one. But actually, there's still limits on it. Because here's the problem. Christ in my life holds the danger of still being quite me-centered. Christ into my life. Christ becomes a one of many priorities that I'm balancing and juggling to try and keep in the right order. Hopefully he's number one, but there's others that, that jockey for that position as well. Paul actually shows us in Colossians 3 that there's a better way of seeing Christ that is more transformative. Verse 3, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is in my life, but actually far more importantly, my life is in Christ's. Christ isn't just a number of one of a number of priorities. He transcends them all. He is the very essence of our existence, the pure water, the bread of life in whom we have our being. Christ hasn't just come into my life, but actually more biblically, I have come into his. Well, this means that if, if you have faith in Jesus, despite all your failings and all your faults, you have been drawn into the very life of God. His holiness, his perfection, his delight, his strength has become yours because you have been raised with Christ. He has become your life. Christ, who is your life. Which, of course, we, we can't consider unless we also remember that in order to do that, in order to become our life, Christ first became our death. And this is so important. The way to experience inner transformation is through constant reflection on the depths of God's grace in Jesus. That Jesus left a life of glory in heaven to pursue the darkness of death on earth so that we who dwell in death might be raised to his glorious life. How do you resist the worldliness of envying what others have? By reminding yourself that the very light of heaven became so ugly and disfigured in darkness that, so that we could become clothed in his glory and light so having received everything why would we covet anything how to resist the worldliness of arrogantly proclaiming our rightness and becoming intolerant of everyone else by reminding ourselves that the word of God who is always in the right became the friend of all those in the wrong including us and kept silent even as he was unjustly accused so that he could reconcile us to God and teach us to love our enemies. And how do we resist the worldliness of greedy consumerism? Well, by reminding ourselves that the God who is internally satisfied in himself took on our humanity that hungers and thirsts, even to die physically and spiritually empty on the cross, so that he could open up for us the waters of life and bless us with every spiritual blessing. These are just a few examples of dipping our toes into the dynamics of grace. It's the gospel at once beautifully simple and yet endlessly intricate. <laughs> to set your heart on things above is to drink deeply of the truth that Christ became death so that he could become your life. And as Proverbs put it, it's to look, look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. This is the heart of spiritual formation, to establish yourself in an environment and in rhythms and habits 
where you are constantly drinking deeply from the gospel. So it's no accident that uh, not too far ahead in Colossians, Paul urges his friends in Colossae to two practices. He's, in 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the word of God in the scriptures. And 4 verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Be committed to regularly bringing your life to God in prayer. These are what some have called uh, the two most essential spiritual disciplines. Uh, but like most powerful tools, uh, they can be used in counterproductive ways. Because we might think, ah, if I, if I pray and read the Bible, that I'll feel less guilty. If I pray and read the Bible, that others will respect me for it. If I pray and read the Bible, then God will give me what I want. Then God will know I'm a serious Christian. And accept me. But this turns these practices uh, into just a means to an end. It twists them actually into something not godly but worldly. It makes you like a tree that looks healthy and tall, but underneath the soil, shallow roots mean that you're just waiting to topple and crash down. There's another older term for these practices uh, that helps us, I think, understand better what these are for, and that is that they are the means of grace. That is, they are two main ways in which God establishes you in wonder at his grace and a love for his son. They are the two main ways that God reveals Christ to you as the most beautiful and desirable thing in all creation. Not ways to manipulate God into giving you something, but ways God opens your eyes to life-changing truth that Christ has become your life. Christ who is your life. Tim Keller puts it this way, There is no way to sustain a pattern of holiness in Christian living without a kindling of our hearts by deep meditation on God's mercy and grace. We need to begin reflecting on the mercies of God. Or as the old song goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And what? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of of his glory and grace. So over the next few weeks, we'll explore a life of scripture meditation, life of reflective prayer, and a life of Sabbath rest. And I hope now we can approach them not out of guilt for having not done enough for God, but out of joy because God has done more than enough for us. And he has opened the gates for us to come and know this Christ who is our life. I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to leave us for a couple of minutes in silent reflection, um, not to necessarily go back over my words, but actually hear from God, hear from Jesus, because uh, he's far better. Uh, faithful, faithful Jesus, faithful one, speak to us and grant us, Lord, your peace and your love. May we know you and how you have become our life through your death, so that our lives might be formed to become not worldly but godly, not discontent, uh, but joyful as we uh, partner with you in the Holy Spirit in the renovation of these bodies of ours and long for the day when you return and raise us finally to be perfect in nature like you forever and ever. Amen.